Chapter Two of Whose Body by Dorothy Sayers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Kirsten Weber. Chapter Two. Excellent, Bunter said Lord Peter, sinking with a sigh into a luxurious armchair. I couldn't have done better myself. The thought of the Dante makes my mouth water. And the four sons of Amon, and you've saved me sixty pounds. That's glorious. What shall we spend it on, Bunter? Think of it. All ours to do as we like with. For, as Harold Skimpole so rightly observes, sixty pounds saved is sixty pounds gained. And I'd reckoned on spending it all. It's your savings, Bunter, and properly speaking, your sixty pounds. What do we want? Anything in your department? Would you like anything altered in the flat? Well, my lord, as your lordship is so good, the manservant paused, about to pour an old brandy into a liqueur glass. Well, out with it, my bunter, you imperturbable old hypocrite. It's no good talking as if you were announcing dinner. You're spilling the brandy. The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. What does that blessed dark room of yours want now? There's a double anastigmat with a set of supplementary lenses, my lord, said Bunter, with a note almost of religious fervor. If it was a case of forgery now, or footprints, I could enlarge them right up on the plate. Or the wide-angled lens would be useful. It's as though the camera had eyes at the back of its head, my lord. Look, I've got it here. He pulled a catalogue from his pocket, and submitted it, quivering, to his employer's gaze. Lord Peter perused the description slowly, the corners of his long mouth lifted into a faint smile. "'It's Greek to me,' he said, "'and fifty pounds seems a ridiculous price for a few bits of glass. I suppose, Bunter, you'd say seven hundred fifty pounds was a bit out of the way for a dirty old book in a dead language, wouldn't you? It wouldn't be my place to say so, my lord. No, Bunter, I pay you two hundred pounds a year to keep your thoughts to yourself. Tell me, Bunter, in these democratic days, don't you think that's unfair? No, my lord. You don't. Do you mind telling me frankly why you don't think it unfair? Frankly, my lord, your lordship is paid a nobleman's income to take Lady Worthington in to dinner and refrain from exercising your lordship's undoubted powers of repartee. Lord Peter considered this. That's your idea, is it, Bunter? Noblesse oblige for a consideration. I dare say you're right. "'Then you're better off than I am, because I'd have to behave myself to Lady Worthington if I hadn't a penny. Bunter, if I sacked you here and now, would you tell me what you think of me?' "'No, my lord.' "'You'd have a perfect right to, my Bunter, and if I sacked you on top of drinking the kind of coffee you make, I would deserve everything you could say of me.' You're a demon for coffee, Bunter. I don't want to know how you do it, because I believe it to be witchcraft, and I don't want to burn eternally. You can buy your cross-eyed lens. Thank you, my lord. Have you finished in the dining-room? Not quite, my lord. Well, come back when you have. I have many things to tell you. 
"'Hullo, who's that?' The doorbell had rung sharply. "'Unless it's anybody interesting, I'm not at home.' "'Very good, my lord.' Lord Peter's library was one of the most delightful bachelor rooms in London. Its scheme was black and primrose, its walls were lined with rare editions, and its chairs and Chesterfield sofa suggested the embraces of the Uries. In one corner stood a black baby grand. A wood-fire leaped on a wide, old-fashioned hearth, and the sev vases on the chimney-piece were filled with ruddy and gold chrysanthemums. To the eyes of the young man, who was ushered in from the raw November fog, it seemed not only rare and unattainable, but friendly and familiar, like a colourful and gilded paradise in a medieval painting. "'Mr. Parker, my lord.' Lord Peter jumped up with genuine eagerness. "'My dear man, I'm delighted to see you. What a beastly foggy night, ain't it? Bunter, some more of that admirable coffee, and another glass, and the cigars?' "'Parker, I hope you're full of crime. Nothing less than arson or murder will do for us to-night, on such a night as this. Bunter and I were just sitting down to carouse. I've got a Dante and a Caxton folio that is practically unique at Sir Ralph Brocklebury's sale. Bunter, who did the bargaining, is going to have a lens which does all kinds of wonderful things with its eyes shut. And—' We both have got a body in a bath. We both have got a body in the bath. For in spite of all temptations to go in for cheap sensations, we insist upon a body in a bath. Nothing less will do for us, Parker. It's mine at present, but we're going shares in it. Property of the firm. Won't you join us? You really must put something in the jackpot. Perhaps you have a body. Oh, do have a body. Everybody welcome. Gin the body, meet a body, hauled before the beak. Gin the body, jolly well knows who murdered a body, and that old sug is on the wrong tack. Need a body speak. Not a bit of it. He tips a glassy wink to yours truly, and yours truly reads the truth. Ah, said Parker. I knew you'd been round to Queen Caroline Mansions. So have I, and met Sugg. And he told me he'd seen you. He was cross, too. Unwarrantable interference, he calls it. I knew he would, said Lord Peter. I love taking a rise out of dear old Sugg. He's always so rude. I see by the star that he has excelled himself by taking the girl, Gladys What's-Her-Name, into custody— Sug of the evening, beautiful Sug. But what were you doing there? To tell you the truth, said Parker, I went round to see if the Semitic-looking stranger in Mr. Thipps's bath was by any extraordinary chance Sir Reuben Levy, but he isn't. Sir Reuben Levy, wait a minute. I saw something about that. I know a headline— Mysterious Disappearance of Famous Financier. What's it all about? I didn't read it carefully. Well, it's a bit odd, though I dare say it's nothing really. Old chap may have cleared out for some reason best known to himself. 
It only happened this morning, and nobody would have thought anything about it, only it happened to be the day on which he had arranged to attend a most important financial meeting and do some deal involving millions. I haven't got all the details, but I know he's got enemies who just assumed the deal didn't come off, so when I got wind of this fellow in the bath I buzzed round to have a look at him. It didn't seem likely, of course, but unlikelier things do happen in our profession. Funny thing is, old Sugg has got bitten with the idea it is him, and is wildly telegraphing to Lady Levy to come and identify him. However, as Sir Reuben is a pious Jew of pious parents, and the chap in the bath obviously isn't, I'm not going to waste my time. One thing is, the man really would be extraordinarily like Sir Reuben if he had a beard, and as Lady Levy is abroad with the family somebody may say it's him, and Sugg will build up a lovely theory like the Tower of Babel and destined so to perish. You are certain of your facts, I suppose? Positive. Sugg, of course, says he doesn't take account of fancy religions. Sugg's a beautiful braying ass, said Lord Peter. He's like a detective in a novel. Well, I don't know anything about Levy, but I've seen the body, and I should say the idea was preposterous upon the face of it. What do you think of the brandy? Unbelievable whimsy sort of thing makes one believe in heaven. But I want your yarn. Do you mind if Bunter hears it, too? Invaluable man, Bunter. Amazing fellow with a camera. And the odd thing is he's always on the spot when I want my bath or my boots. I don't know when he develops things. I believe he does them in his sleep. Bunter? Yes, my lord. Stop fiddling about in there and get yourself the proper things to drink and join the merry throng. Certainly, my lord. Mr. Parker has a new trick, the vanishing financier. Absolutely no deception. Hey, presto, pass, and where is he? Will some gentleman from the audience kindly step upon the platform and inspect the cabinet? Thank you, sir. The quickness of the end deceives the eye. I'm afraid mine isn't much of a story, said Parker. It's just one of those simple things that offer no handle. Sir Reuben Levy dined last night with three friends at the Ritz. After dinner the friends went to the theatre. He refused to go with them on account of an appointment. I haven't yet been able to trace the appointment, but, anyhow, he returned home to his house, 9 Park Lane, at 12 o'clock. Who saw him? The cook, who had just gone up to bed, saw him on the doorstep and heard him let himself in. He walked upstairs, leaving his greatcoat on the hall peg and his umbrella in the stand. You remember how it rained last night. He undressed and went to bed. Next morning he wasn't there. "'That's all,' said Barker, abruptly, with a wave of his hand. "'It isn't all, it isn't all, Daddy. Go on, that's not half a story,' pleaded Lord Peter. "'But it is all. When his man came to call him, he wasn't there. The bed had been slept in, his pyjamas and his clothes were there, the only odd thing being that they were thrown rather untidily on the ottoman at the foot of the bed instead of being neatly folded on a chair, as is Sir Reuben's custom, looking as though he had been rather agitated or unwell. No clean clothes missing, no suit, no boots, nothing. The boots he had worn were in his dressing-room as usual. 
He had washed and cleaned his teeth and done all the usual things. The housemaid was down cleaning the hall at half-past six and can swear that nobody came in or out after that. So one is forced to suppose that a respectable middle-aged Hebrew financier either went mad between twelve and six a.m. and walked quietly out of the house in his birthday suit on a November night, or else was spirited away, like the lady in the Ingoldsby legend, body and bones, leaving only a heap of crumpled clothes behind him. Was the front door bolted? That's the sort of question you would ask straight off. Took me an hour to think of it. No, contrary to custom, there was only the Yale lock on the door. On the other hand, some of the maids had been given leave to go to the theatre, and Sir Reuben may quite conceivably have left the door open, under the impression they had not come in. Such a thing has happened before. And that's really all? Really all, except for one trifling circumstance. I love trifling circumstances, said Lord Peter, with childish delight. So many men have been hanged by trifling circumstances. What was it? Sir Reuben and Lady Levy, who are a most devoted couple, always share the same room. Lady Levy, as I said before, is in Montagne at the moment for her health. In her absence, Sir Reuben sleeps in the double bed as usual, and invariably on his own side, the outside of the bed. Last night, he put the two pillows together, and slept in the middle, or, if anything, rather closer to the wall than otherwise. The housemaid, who is a most intelligent girl, noticed this when she went up to make the bed, and, with really admirable detective instinct, refused to touch the bed or let anyone else touch it, though it wasn't till later that they actually sent for the police. Was nobody in the house but Sir Reuben and the servants? No. Lady Levy was away with her daughter and her maid. The valet, cook, parlour-maid, housemaid, and kitchen-maid were the only people in the house, and naturally wasted an hour or two squawking and gossiping. I got there about ten. What have you been doing since? Trying to get on the track of Sir Reuben's appointment last night, since, with the exception of the cook, his appointer was the last person who saw him before his disappearance. There may be some quite simple explanation, though I'm dashed if I can think of one for the moment. Hang it all, a man doesn't come in and go to bed and walk away again mid-noddings on in the middle of the night. He may have been disguised. I thought of that. In fact, it seems the only possible explanation. But it's deuced odd, Whimsy. An important city man, on the eve of an important transaction, without a word of warning to anybody, slips off in the middle of the night, disguised down to his skin, leaving behind his watch, purse, checkbook, and, most mysterious and important of all, his spectacles, without which he can't see a step, as he is extremely short-sighted. He— That is important, interrupted Whimsy. You're sure he didn't take a second pair? His man vouches for it that he only had two pairs, one of which was found on his dressing-table and the other in the drawer where it's always kept. Lord Peter whistled. <whistles> You've got me there, Parker. Even if he'd gone out to commit suicide, he'd have taken those. So you'd think, or the suicide would have happened the first time he started to cross the road. However, I didn't overlook the possibility. 
I've got particulars of all today's street accidents, and I can lay my hand on my heart and say that none of them is Sir Reuben. Besides, he took his latch-key with him, which looks as though he'd meant to come back. Have you seen the men he dined with? I found two of them at the club. They said that he seemed in the best of health and spirits, spoke of looking forward to joining Lady Levy later on, perhaps at Christmas, and referred with great satisfaction to this morning's business transaction, in which one of them, a man called Anderson of Wyndham's, was himself concerned. Then, up till about nine o'clock, anyhow, he had no apparent intention or expectation of disappearing. None, unless he was a most consummate actor. Whatever happened to change his mind must have happened either at the mysterious appointment which he kept after dinner, or while he was in bed between midnight and 5.30 a.m. "'Well, Buncher,' said Lord Peter, "'what do you make of it?' "'Not in my department, my lord, except that it is odd that a gentleman who was too flurried or unwell to fold his clothes as usual should remember to clean his teeth and put his boots out. Those are two things that quite frequently get overlooked, my lord.' "'If you mean anything personal, Bunter,' said Lord Peter, "'I can only say I think the speech an unworthy one.' "'It's a sweet little problem, Parker mine. Look here, I don't want to butt in, but I should dearly love to see that bedroom to-morrow. "'Tis not that I mistrust thee, dear, but I should uncommonly like to see it. "'Say me not nay. Take another drop of brandy and a villar-villar, but say not, say not nay. "'Of course you can come and see it. You'll probably find lots of things I've overlooked,' said the other, equably accepting the proffered hospitality." "'Parker, Akushla, you are an honour to Scotland Yard. I look at you, and Sug appears a myth, a fable, an idiot boy, spawned in a moonlight hour by some fantastic poet's brain. Sug is too perfect to be possible. What does he make of the body, by the way?' "'Sug says,' replied Parker, with precision, "'that the body died from a blow on the back of the neck. The doctor told him that. He says it's been dead a day or two. The doctor told him that, too. He says it's the body of a well-to-do Hebrew of about fifty. Anybody could have told him that. He says it's ridiculous to suppose it came in through the window without anybody knowing anything about it. He says it probably walked in through the front door and was murdered by the household. He's arrested the girl because she's short and frail-looking and quite unequal to downing a tall and sturdy Semite with a poker. He'd arrest Thipps, only Thipps was away in Manchester all day yesterday and the day before and didn't come back till late last night. In fact, he wanted to arrest him till I reminded him that if the body had been a day or two dead, little Thipps couldn't have done him in at ten-thirty last night. "'But he'll arrest him to-morrow morning as an accessory, "'and the old lady with the knitting, too, I shouldn't wonder.' "'Well, I'm glad the little man has so much of an alibi,' said Lord Peter. "'Though if you're only gluing your faith to cadaveric lividity, rigidity, "'and all the other quiddities, "'you must be prepared to have some sceptical beast of a prosecuting counsel "'walk slap-bang through the medical evidence.' 
Remember Impy Biggs defending in that Chelsea tea-shop affair? Six bloomin' medicos contradictin' each other in the box, and old Impy elocutin' abnormal cases from Glaister and Dixon Man till the eyes of the jury reeled in their heads. Are you prepared to swear, Dr. Thingamtite, that the onset of rigor mortis indicates the hour of death without the possibility of error? So far as my experience goes, in the majority of cases, says the doctor, all stiff, ah says biggs but this is a court of justice doctor not a parliamentary election we can't get on without a minority report the law doctor thingamtite respects the rights of the minority alive or dead some ass laughs and old biggs sticks his chest out and gets impressive gentlemen this is no laughing matter my client an upright and honourable gentleman is being tried for his life for his life gentlemen and it is the business of the prosecution to show his guilt if they can without a shadow of a doubt now dr thingamtite i ask you again can you solemnly swear without the least shadow of a doubt probable possible shadow of a doubt that this unhappy woman met her death neither sooner nor later than thursday evening a probable opinion gentlemen we are not jesuits we are straightforward englishmen you cannot ask a british-born jury to convict any man on the authority of a probable opinion hum of applause biggs's man was guilty all the same said parker of course he was but he was acquitted all the same and what you've just said is libel whimsy walked over to the bookcase and took down a volume of medical jurisprudence rigor mortis can only be stated in a very general way many factors determining the result cautious brute on the average however stiffening will have begun neck and jaw five to six hours after death in all likelihood have passed off in the bulk of cases by the end of thirty-six hours under certain circumstances however it may appear unusually early or be retarded unusually long helpful ain't it parker brown Secar states three and a half minutes after death in certain cases not until lapse of sixteen hours after death present as long as twenty-one days thereafter lord modifying factors age muscular state febrile diseases or where a temperature of environment is high and so on and so on any blooming thing never mind you can run the argument for what it's worth to sug he won't know any better he tossed the book away come back to facts what did you make of the body well said the detective not very much i was puzzled frankly i should say he'd been a rich man but self-made and that his good fortune had come to him fairly recently ah you've noticed the calluses on the hands i thought you wouldn't miss that both his feet were badly blistered he had been wearing tight shoes walking a long way in them too said lord peter to get such blisters as that didn't that strike you as odd, in a person evidently well off? Well, I don't know. The blisters were two or three days old. He might have got stuck in the suburbs one night, perhaps. 
Last train gone, no taxi, had to walk home. Mm, possibly. There were some little red marks all over his back and one leg I couldn't quite count for. I saw them. What did you make of them? I'll tell you afterwards. Go on. He was very long-sighted, oddly long-sighted for a man in the prime of life. The glasses were like a very old man's. By the way, they had a very beautiful and remarkable chain of flat links chased with a pattern. It struck me he might be traced through it. I've just put an advertisement in the Times about it, said Lord Peter. Go on. He had had the glasses some time. They had been mended twice. Beautiful, Parker, beautiful. Did you realize the importance of that? Mm, not specially, I'm afraid. Why? Never mind. Go on. He was probably a sullen, ill-tempered man. His nails were filed down to the quick, as though he habitually bit them, and his fingers were bitten as well. He smoked quantities of cigarettes without a holder. He was particular about his personal appearance. Did you examine the room at all? I didn't get a chance. I couldn't find much in the way of footprints. Sugg and company had tramped all over the place, to say nothing of little Phipps and the maid, but I noticed a very indefinite patch just behind the head of the bath, as though something damp might have stood there. You could hardly call it a print. It rained hard all last night, of course. Yes. Did you notice that the soot on the window-sill was vaguely marked? I did, said Whimsy and I examined it hard with this little fellow, but I could make nothing of it except something or other had rested on the sill. He drew out his monocle and handed it to Parker. My word, that's a powerful lens. It is, said Whimsy, and jolly useful when you want to take a good squint at something and look like a bally fool all the time. Only it don't do to wear it permanently. If people see you full face, they say, Dear me, how weak the sight of that eye must be. Still, it's useful. Sugg and I explored the ground at the back of the building, went on Parker, but there wasn't a trace. That's interesting. Did you try the roof? No. We'll go over it tomorrow. The gutter's only a couple of feet off the top of the window. I measured it with my stick. The gentleman scouts that a make em, I call it. It's marked off in inches. Uncommonly handy companion at times. There's a sword inside and a compass in the head. Got it made specially. Anything more? Afraid not. Let's hear your version, Whimsy. Well, I think you've got most of the points. There are just one or two little contradictions. For instance, Here's a man who wears expensive gold-rimmed pince-nez, and has had them long enough to be mended twice, yet his teeth are not merely discolored, but badly decayed, and look as if he'd never cleaned them in his life. There are four molars missing on one side, and three on the other, and one front tooth broken right across. He's a man careful of his personal appearance, as witness his hair and his hands, what do you say of that? Oh, these self-made men of low origin don't think much about teeth and are terrified of dentists. True, but one of the molars had a broken edge so rough that it had made a sore spot on his tongue. 
"'Nothing's more painful. Do you mean to tell me a man would put up with that if he could afford to get a tooth filed?' "'Well, people are queer. I've known servants and your agonies rather than step over a dentist's doormat. How did you see that, Whimsy?' "'Have a look inside. Electric torch,' said Lord Peter. "'Handy little gadget. Looks like a matchbox. Well, I dare say it's all right, but I just draw your attention to it. Second point. Gentlemen with hair smellin' of Parma violet, and manicured hands, and all the rest of it, never washes the inside of his ears. Full of wax. Nasty. You've got me there, Whimsy. I never noticed it. Still— old bad habits die hard right-o put it down at that third point gentlemen with the manicure and the brillantine and all the rest of it suffers from fleas by jove you're right flea bites it never occurred to me no doubt about it old son the marks were faint and old but unmistakable of course now you mention it still that might happen to anybody I loosed a whopper in the best hotel in Lincoln the week before last. I hope it bit the next occupier. Oh, all these things might happen to anybody, separately. Fourth point. Gentleman who uses Parma Violet for his hair, etc., etc., washes his body in strong carbolic soap, so strong that the smell hangs about twenty-four hours later. Hmm, carbolic to get rid of the fleas? I will say for you, Parker, you've got an answer for everything. Fifth point. Carefully got up, gentleman with manicured, though masticated, fingernails, has filthy black toenails, which look as if they hadn't been cut for years. Hmm, all of a piece with habits as indicated? Yes, I know, but such habits— now, sixth and last point, this gentleman with the intermittently gentlemanly habits arrives in the middle of a pouring wet night, and apparently through the window, when he has already been twenty-four hours dead, and lies down quietly in Mr. Thipps's bath, unseasonably dressed in a pair of pince-nez, not a hair on his head is ruffled. The hair has been cut so recently that there are quite a number of short little hairs stuck on his neck and the sides of the bath, and he has shaved so recently that there is a line of dried soap on his cheek. Whimsy! Wait a minute! And dried soap in his mouth! Bunter got up, and appeared suddenly at the detective's elbow, the respectful manservant all over. "'A little more brandy, sir,' he murmured. "'Whimsy,' said Parker, "'you are making me feel cold all over.' He emptied his glass, stared at it, as though he were surprised to find it empty, set it down, got up, walked across to the bookcase, turned round, stood with his back against it, and said, "'Look here, Whimsy, you've been reading detective stories. You're talking nonsense.' "'No, I ain't,' said Lord Peter, sleepily. "'Uncommonly good incident for detective story, though, what? Bunter will write one, and you shall illustrate it with photographs.' "'Soap, in his—' "'Rubbish,' said Parker. 
It was something else, some discoloration. No, said Lord Peter. There were hairs as well, bristly ones. He had a beard. He took his watch from his pocket and drew out a couple of longish, stiff hairs, which he had imprisoned between the inner and outer case. Parker turned them over once or twice in his fingers, looked at them close to the light, examined them with a lens, handed them to the impassable bunter, and said, "'Do you mean to tell me, Whimsy, that any man alive would—' He laughed harshly. "'Shave off his beard with his mouth open, and then go and get killed with his mouth full of hairs? You're mad!' "'I don't tell you so,' said Whimsy. "'You policemen are all alike, only one idea in your skulls. Blessed if I can make out why you're ever appointed. He was shaved after he was dead. Pretty, ain't it? Uncommonly jolly little job for the barber, what? Here, sit down, man, and don't be an ass stumping about the room like that. Worse things happen in war. This is only a blinkin' old shillin' shocker. But I'll tell you what, Parker, we're up against a criminal. The criminal the real artist and blighter with imagination. Real artistic finished stuff. I'm enjoying this, Parker. End of chapter 2 Recorded by Kirsten Weber